There's more to ease. Financial District Home Office. Now that's it. Baby, if you've ever wondered, wondered what became of Joe and me. We're living on the air at Carnival Personnel. Carnival Personnel Podcast CPP. Listen to Jacques and Comparant Yapping. While Joe can quote a movie line by line. They may have no idea what they're talking about. But all in all, they still sound pretty fine. It's Carnival Personnel, the CP Podcast. Hello, and welcome to Carnival Personnel Sideshow. I'm Jacques. I'm Joe. And Joe... I'm goofy, excited, losing sleep like a seven-year-old the week before Christmas about the conversation we're about to have. And and you know that's not exaggeration. But my question with you, Joe, if you took a poll of just the names like the Bill Burr and, you know, coming out of Boston over the last like 30 years and the legends, the regional legends like the Tony V's and the Steve Bjorks and the Christine Hurley's and you ask them, Hey, what are the three biggest reasons that Boston is unarguably the epicenter of stand-up comedy? Is there anybody that we were poll who wouldn't have the name John Tobin as being one of the three reasons Boston is where it is in comedy? I can't imagine. So ever being the case, but you know, Maybe some of these people out here don't know who John Tobin is. Maybe we should introduce some of these, you know, uh, troglodytes to right. the, the legend John Tobin. Uh, I, I'd be I'd be heartbroken if the people who you know generally listen know comedy. But yes, a lot of our LA friends might not. So enough and is enough. Sideshow fans, carnival personnel people, welcome John Tobin. Oh, guys, thank you so much. That was. Uh... Way too generous of an introduction. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to be talking with you both as well. You know, I, I had written that introduction a few years ago for Dick Doherty, but we couldn't get him before he passed. So I just crossed out one name. And, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll talk. I'm sure we'll talk about we'll talk about Dick. But uh, I've got a. I always used to joke that uh, I had to wait for Dick to pass away so I could write the book about him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I, I went to his services and uh say what you will about dick but uh he gave a lot of people their start in the business uh including myself i would not be in the business without dick darty kind of me too i mean my first real like i kind of snuck into a showcase like open mic you know years and years ago through dick, one of dick's clubs you know like i was a, literally like a nobody but i kind of had a connection and long story short i was able to like actually perform stand up in front of a crowd you know maybe it was like my third time ever doing stand up but i was up there with guys who've been up there for you know doing it for like you know several years sure. and when i've heard you john talk about dick dory he has given so many people their start it's one of those things it's like did he take advantage of a lot of people, especially kids? And the answer is yes. But it's one of those things where, like, like the movie Swimming with Sharks or just real life, you had to pay your dues, and at least you actually got something out of this, you know? You used to have comics beat people. Right. I mean, the first club I worked in for Dick, and uh, it's crazy how I ended up with him, but um, 
I, I would show up. I was light ship. So it was a little boat next to uh, the milk bottle uh, in Boston Harbor. And I was just excited to be there. And the, uh, I would, I would see people and he said, well, I'm going to send, I'm going to send uh, so-and-so to help you. And, and then I saw the president come and help me. And then they said, Oh, by the way, I'm on second. And I'm like, so I even like the first couple of days, I'm like, wait a minute, a comedian to help and see people is just sort of like, and and it was just seemed crazy to me. So I wouldn't make them do it. I do it myself because I just felt that was just kind of like, and Dick would get mad when he found out that I wasn't making the guy see people. But I just found that to be weird. And like the first time I went to go introduce a comic, he had like three months in. He says, "I want you to introduce the first comic tonight." And oh my god, my parents came, my aunts and uncles, and. So I seat everybody. It's a packed place. And I get up on stage. And I'm so nervous. I'm holding on to the back curtain with microphone. And, and I, I, you can barely hear me. I'm squeaking. Right. And I hear my one of my aunts in the crowd says, oh, isn't he? Oh, look at him. He's adorable. <laughs> and then some guy on the left, he says to his wife, well, I don't know. You know, he says, uh, is that the guy you just sat us? I think they're all <laughs> going to try and go up and do 15 minutes of comedy. They're like, so, yeah, I, I've always known my role. <laughs> well, you <laughs> know, the role of the comics, you know. And that, that, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting that you say that because, you know, an interesting thing has kind of transpired through the podcast. I saw, I saw Mike Donovan a few months ago. I opened for him. Like there's a guy, a sweetheart, you know, you know, everybody was was told last night. I had Mike on a show last night and uh, we just gave him the Boston comedy uh, legends award. Oh, Uh, that's fantastic. uh, Mike, you know, there ought to be no argument about this out of the big, you know, the Mount Rushmore times two times three, whatever you want to say, the guys who started the scene, you know, would there be a comedy scene in Boston with all those guys? Of course. Would it be the way it is today without them? Absolutely not. And Mike Donovan is quietly one of the best, if not the best of the whole bunch. He's it's, very under, very, very underrated. Every uh, comedian loves him. Like, I don't know a comedian who doesn't. And there's a guy, Greg Bogus. I'm quite sure you know Greg. Yep. He's He gave me my first real book show. He runs his place in Lowell, you know, monthly. And he brings in Mike, Tony V, all these great people. And he always lets me open. I saw Mike. And the thing about him, there's so many, the Seinfeld Economy Awards, there's so many people with their tight, tight set. I honestly, in his 45 minutes, he didn't utter a syllable extra that he had to there wasn't a wasted breath it was watching a surgeon you yeah, know it's an economy it's an economy of words it's like uh, don gavin don gavin's my favorite of all time um and gavin just the economy of words where we were in a, we were i went out to lunch with him down in florida he lives now my in-laws we were down there last year and so he came up he drove up from his house and my he knows my in-laws from going way back in fact, he lived in one of their apartments, you know, back in the 60s. And they, he and my, uh, Don and my father-in-law were a couple of years apart at Catholic Memorial High School in the 60s. And so they go way, way back. And so now we're going out to lunch. My mother-in-law's driving. My father-in-law's in the front. I'm in the middle seat with Don Gavin. And my son, Danny, is in the back. And my father-in-law turns around to Don Gavin and says, uh, Gav, uh, Don, how's your, uh, how's your phone? my brother-in-law doing and gav says not good and my father said what's the matter and he said he's dead <laughs> and my and my father says how'd he die and gav says boredom <laughs> three jokes five words 
Yep. <laughs> not a wasted and, syllable, not a wasted breath. And and it, it such where where Donovan is just everything you can think of. He labored over every syllable. Gavin has that Gatling gun kind of stream of conscious of like it. If a butterfly goes by, it's not the butterfly effect, but he has a bit about its wings. You know what I mean? He or has, something. I, there's some, I adore Don Gavin. I mean, to me, I know his act through and through. Uh, if they had ever had like Kara Jokey, uh, <laughs> I do Don Gavin. I just be, you know, I, I just think the world of him, he's brought me so much joy, <laughs> right. And, 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 and joy and the laughs off stage, the way he is off stage. And the, I mean, I just find him to be, it's a breed of comedy that's kind of gone away. Cause you know, and not, not that it's a, that would, you know, like you said, a Gatling gun, just like, you know, quick. And then, you know, now today is more storytelling and, you know, it's, you know, comedy changes. It goes through metamorphosis and that's fine. But Give me Don Gavin any day of the week. And the interesting thing about Mike, so when I opened for him at uh, Bogus's show, I bought his book after, was reading it. It, it, was, it was fascinating, but there was this thing about the lost art of hosting. And then, you know, I think the week after that, I had, uh, we had Jim McHugh on, who I opened for, just a sweetheart. Like, yeah, if, the, if there's a better crowd work guy in the States than Jim McHugh right now. I haven't got to see them yet, and I'd love yeah, to. No, he's, uh, he's, but, he's 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 up there. I, Jim Jim and I go way back. We started the Boston Comedy right. Festival together. And he was talking that, like, I was reading this chapter about, like, the lost art of hosting, and he said, you know, I do these cruise ships, and nobody who hosts wants to host. Everybody will host. And then it's funny, then a couple weeks later, I become friendly with uh, Mike Atrobis. He's on the show, and Mike said, you know, club after club owner comes to me and says, Great comics, no host. And so Mike has started writing hosting classes. And when you talked about, you know, your role to stay in the lane, I'm hosting a show for Mike tomorrow. And I think I'm pretty okay. Hosting's a different thing. And I love it. And people don't know that, you know what? There's a, there's a career in hosting and emceeing and being that guy. And, and I tell people it's not, Hey, I'm lazy. I got into this late. I'm not going to get my 10,000 hours. I don't, the, when I went from a five to a 12 minute set, I thought I was going to die. It's too much work, but this hosting thing, it's a blast if you want to do it. Yeah. Ed McMahon, uh, Steve Harvey and Tom Bergeron have all bought private jets because of hosting. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, it's, a, it is a lost. I, I just say it's so important to have such a strong host in a club where the energy's up, you know, you gotta, you know, we all understand or we should understand that, uh, for someone to get to our club and purchase a ticket, there's so many, especially in Boston in, or around, there's so many different choices for people to go to athletic events, you know, collegiate events, pro, the theater, uh, other comedy shows. They come there, they, you know, they got a babysitter, they took time off from work, they whatever, you know, and, and they drive in and they park and they pay to park and they come in. you got to, you know, that's got to start, that show has got to be electric from, you know, start to end, and it means a host. You know, there's some people who are unbelievable comics, but they're terrible hosts. Right. You know, hey, how you doing? It's like, there's no energy, right? You need a, you're welcoming. The host is really going to sacrifice a lot of themselves because you're you're setting the table. You're setting the table 
with the crowd, uh, but also with your fellow comics and, and, and making it easier for them. So the people come on and they're, you know, they're ready to go. It's like you want to be likable and fun, but you're not supposed to overshadow. You know, if, and if you come out and you kill before the headliner comes out, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, people who do that, it's a kind of a lack of respect for the people following you because it's just not your function there that night. There's a time and place to go blow the you know roof off the place. Hosting is not that time. <laughs> well, well, that's the thing. It, like, if if it's a small room or it's a, the first show on a Thursday and there's 15 people in the room and you're doing crowd work before Jim comes out, like, like, dude, you, you know, no, no, yeah, it's and a very it's like, small pond. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, and you got to be a host that you know whether there's 15 people in the crowd or there's 1,500, you treat it the exact same way. I, I always, I. I'm always astounded by, you know, comics get up on stage and they lament uh, how few people are in the crowd. I say, I don't know what you're mad at them for. They're the ones who came. You should be mad at the 200 people who didn't come. You know, why are you mad at the people who, who are here? Joe, Joe and <laughs> I had, Joe and I had a great friend in town from LA with his wife and daughter looking at colleges a couple months ago. Uh, Joe, we had one evening to do something. Let, let, let Mr. Tobin know what we chose to do. Oh, we went right on the corner to Nick's Comedy Stop. Oh, wow. And it, it was an experience. It's, uh, it's a different kettle of fish there at Nick's. I mean, we're on it to run. It's the first place I ever saw live comedy. Um, yep. Junior in high school, uh, my buddy Gary and uh, his brother Peter, the three of us went. Uh, we used fake IDs to get in and... We watched, it was Kevin Knox, it was uh, DJ Hazard, Don Gavin, and Steve Sweeney came off the street and did a closing guest set at the end. And we walked out of there. It was like we it was like Alice in Wonderland. Like it yeah. changed it actually changed my life. We were just uh, walking back to the car in awe. I'll never forget it. And from then it, I was just, you know, I was just no. hooked on, on live comedy from then on in. Same thing. Junior year, I started going to Knicks with my buddy, my goalie from, you know, my junior team. You didn't need a fake ID. You needed an extra 20 bucks, you know, if you, you know, at the same time. And I will never forget the first time in Knicks. I wish I remembered who the comedian was. Comedian comes running on the stage, gets introduced, trips, falls. And he's like, I fall in and I can't get up. It was a pratfall. And to this day, 40-some years later, I still think, I wish I knew who that was. But Nick's has always been this place, you know, and it's funny because as we're walking around, and I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but Joe, I'm going to say it. My friend's daughter, you know, she's looking at colleges, so she's she's not uh, walking in with her own ID. And as we get there, I realize, oh, crap, because the, the girl loves Miss Maisel, so she wanted to see Boston. She knows Boston comedy. And then I'm like, oh, crap, I have my little guy with me. And I mean little guy with me. Yeah. And, and, and the funny thing is the guy at the door is like, well, you know what kind of show this is? I'm like, I'm a comic. He's heard it all. And they're like, okay, fine. But then they said to my buddy, he's like, well, how old's your daughter? It's like, dude, she's, she's a foot tall and four years yeah, older. Yeah. We had a great time and it just still had that Nick's vibe. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's down and dirty for sure. I mean, it doesn't resemble, it's a shadow of its former self. You know, it was, uh, it was called Thunderdome back in the day. Eight. 400 people and, that place was just... Well, I wasn't worried about getting oh. stabbed on the way out like you were before. <laughs> you know? yeah, and that's from the waitress. A, <laughs> there was a place called Playoffs downstairs from that. Yep. And uh, it, everybody would go, you'd go to the, you go to Playoffs beforehand and they, and 
then they always had that promotion. They always papered the room, you know, so <laughs> you and 30 of your friends, you know, yeah. no one has 30 <laughs> friends, first of all. So, but people would show up and you'd eat and drink and then you go up and, you know, and that's what you did up in the club. That's how they lured you in. When we took over Knicks uh, in 2010, they were still papering it. And I said, I'm not running this anymore if we're going to paper the room. Because I just think papering a room on a weekend right. is so disrespectful to, just to the art, just to the art, to the comics, to everybody. Because those are people, I said, I don't care if the people pay a nickel. It, I want them to be invested in the show in some way, right? they they got to be invested in this. And you can't, I paper in a room on a Saturday night. It's just, we would have... I was I I drove home the first couple of weeks that we ran next. I was almost in tears. Like, what have I got myself into? Right, I, I was losing money, and um, and and you know, and then the show would be packed, It'd be 150 people upstairs, and then you know, 30 hairdressers would show up. Nothing is hairdressers, you know, because that's where they were, you know, and they'd be like, yeah, we, we, we got out, we got reserved seats. Like, there's no room to. It's 8.35. The show started five minutes ago. Like, I don't have any sleep left here. And then they start, they start yelling and screaming and, you know, F-bombing me. I'm like, what do you, I don't know what to do. So we just got away from the papering system. And there was actually a guy papering the room without our consent. Oh, jeez. He lived in New Hampshire or whatever. And he just drive down and like hit a, hit a shopping mall and give up free tickets. And it was like the producers. Like yeah, exactly. And uh, we put a, we sent a friendly cease and desist when we finally got a hold of who he was, you know? So uh, <laughs> that was like, it took us about six months. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's so 2010, you had a lot going on. You're, that's, that's around the time you're still on city council and you're getting ready to transition to Northeastern. And that's when you buy a comedy club like Nick's. <laughs> well, I didn't, I didn't buy that. Uh, we actually had a, um, I actually opened up a club. Uh, in the Charles Theater right up the street in the bar where Blue Man and Sham Madness uh, was in the Charles, the, up the top of the hill at Warrington Street. Still there. Yeah, no, it's still there. And I was just in there the, the, the other day. Um, we opened up a, I opened up a club called Tommy's and I did it with a guy named Frank Ahern. Frank used to be at the Comedy Connection in Faneuil Hall. And then when the Comedy Connection... Oh, my wife's favorite place. She used to love that place. It was an awesome... Todd, Ryan Cott, who works uh, for me uh, at our production company and does all our booking was that he came up from uh, from Washington, D.C. as a student and worked there. Work, he was at The Connection. She bought, I think it was his own first thing, Dane Cook. I, I, I don't think it was a cassette, but like you could burn your own CDs by then. And she used to see him at Faneuil Hall. And she, yeah, that that's one of those places that she's crushed because that was part of her... You it know, was, uh, her early twenties. Such a great place, and, and Frank managed that. But when I moved to the Wilbur, he left the organization. So he and I were always friends, and so we started a club called Tommy's uh, in two thousand nine. Uh, <laughs> I was a still in the city council. Uh, Mayor Menino, Mayor Tom Menino. I think thought we named it after him. <laughs> it was actually, uh, and he actually came. He came to opening night, uh, and he opened up the place. And it was uh, it was actually named after Thomas Wignell, who was the first uh, known stand-up comic in the in the country. And uh, General Washington used to go watch him all the time. Wow! Um, yeah, but it was unbecoming for a general, someone of Washington status, to laugh out loud. So he, whenever he went to go see Wignell, he who had like a one-man show, I think called Common Sense or Common. He would he'd cover his mouth with a with a kerchief so he wouldn't <laughs> you know, really laugh. So we named it Tommy's. Nobody knew, you know. Don Gabby say, what the hell is Tommy? 
I'm like, well, who's Nick? You know, who? <laughs> so, <laughs> who's anybody? So, uh, so we, I think Tom Menino was crushed. Mayor Menino was crushed uh, when he came and I had to inform him it wasn't named after him, but he opened up nonetheless for us. And about six months after uh, we opened, uh, and it was it was tough. I always said I wish I had uh, the Nick's name, but the Tommy's room. Ah, well, Nick's is down the street, and it just but so. Uh, about six months after we opened, uh, Frank Frank had a, a stroke, and uh, we all got called to the hospital on a December night. It was a couple of days after Christmas. Um, I got a call from Dana Paca, who you know was Frank's best friend, and they, she worked at the Connection. And um, she said, "Get you going to have to bring him a woman." So I, basically, there were thirty of us there. We we're going to say goodbye. They took us up in Piers to go say goodbye to Frank. Uh, he was in a coma for a couple of months. I would stop by the way home from work. Um, and, you know, just sit at his bed. And a lot of people did. And uh, Dana was always there. And then uh, he came out of it. And he got into, you know, got into a rehab facility on Cohasset. And he was doing well. While that happened, Nick's asked me to take over that room. So now we're running two rooms on the same street. They're both kind of struggling because we're not. So I decided to mothball Tommy's and just concentrate on Nick's. At least there was some revenue there. It was, you know, and then um, a couple of months, I went to go see uh, Frank down at, uh, in, Co in Cohasset or Situate, wherever the, uh, he was in a nursing home, but he was rehabbing and he was in a wheelchair and we had a great conversation. In fact, there was a Celtics, uh, I think a Celtics Lakers game. Was that 2000? Yeah, it was 2010. Celtics played the Lakers in 2010. That's, they eventually lost that series, but uh, the game, the one of the game, game three or four was on the night before. And Frank knew every knew. We talked about the game, and he was sharp, and he knew everything. Yeah. And uh, like a week later, he had another stroke and passed away. Oh, so I... so it was that uh, so that you know we kind of left Tommy's aside and just kind. And then I, Ryan came to work with me because Ryan was a Frank guy. Ryan came with me uh, to just you know get get Nick's back up and going and which we eventually succeeded, but it was a, it was a struggle and it was, you know, it was just difficult because, you know, to, to do without Frank and, and at the same, you're right. At the same time, I, you know, I leave the city council to go to Northeastern. So it was just such a lot going on there. You know? And you got two kids and you're still, this is, so let me get this timeline. This is like, are you still with the Boston comedy festival with Jim at this time? Or was that no, just no, too I many? The festival, I, we started the festival, I think in 99, the uh the first year might have been two thousand, but we started the you know that you know basically we did it out of our apartments, and um, we should I always joke around we I think the first year of the festival in two thousand Jim and I each made five hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and if you broke down the hours you put into that, you made yeah. less than a globe paper boy. Well, we were happy as clams because we you know put something on the map and it was something yeah. on and and then. Uh, we probably should have quit after that year because the second year uh, we got promised it was, it was the dot-com era and every, the dot-coms were throwing, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars at things. And so there was a company called like laugh.com or something like that. And so they had corporate offices out in New York. Uh, I forget where they were. Jim and I go out there and we want them to be the sponsors of the festival. And we have this whole deck and, um, they basically said, we're on board, um, take, go, go back to Boston, get your, your lawyers to draft everything up. 
And we're talking about a huge, huge sponsorship deal. I mean, we almost flew home on our own power. <laughs> and then we had we were going to Chicago the next week. We don't hear from them. We get the stuff drafted up and we don't hear from them. And it kinda, <laughs> so I knew so we go we get on a plane to Chicago, we go to the Chicago Comedy Festival, and uh, which I don't know if it exists anymore, but and I knew what was going to happen. This is the early days of cell phones, and there's no, you can't, they're not even close to using one of your planes. And uh, I knew, so we we go to the luggage carousel at, at O'Hare and turn on my phone. You know, you have one new message, and it's from, you know, sorry, we're going to have to, we're, we're going bankrupt. Right. They were all, all the, it was like do, all the dot coms were all backed up by each other. So it was, then it just had to be dominoes. The dominoes, yep. Right. We had already committed to bringing these huge shows and we had like George Carlin coming into Lowell and we had this, you know, we, uh, suffice to say, um, after the second year, I I was thinking about running away and, you know, uh, in complete anonymity and just disappearing <laughs> into the ether because we owed a lot of money. Oh, no, it's, 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 yeah. on, uh, which was like called AT&T broadband at the time. And this angel, Kathy Brisson, uh, came along and rescued us and gave us sponsorship dollars, took us, basically got us out of the hole from year two. Uh, but then I got elected in 01 and it just became too much. I was in the early days of being a counselor and, and I just, so I, I, uh, I sold my half back to Jim. And he's, you know, he's done a wonderful, I think it's in year 22 or 23 now. And uh, I just saw him the other night at, the, at, at Laugh Boston at the Choice Awards. And he was, uh, it was great to see him because well, I hadn't seen him in a long It's branded out where Jim has made the mistake of becoming my pal. And the best thing about my friendship with Jim now is I get to talk to one of the funniest people on a regular basis. But Joe, are you going to jump in and say something? Did I interrupt you? I was going to uh, make a joke about how you, it's not a good sign when you log into your sponsor's website and you get a 404 <laughs> error. Like, uh oh, wait yeah, a second. Yeah, I think it was that. It might have. It was the. It was the the precursor to 404. I'm not sure what it was. I might have been <laughs> under guy. construction. I got a hard hat. You know. Yeah. You know, I, I'm surprised you leave that meeting. You know, thinking you're getting sponsored, and when you got the phone call saying, "Hey, we're not going to do this." By the way, are you hiring from the guy uh, pretty much yeah that was uh, pretty much what, what happened I, oh my god there was some wow there was a lot of staring at the ceiling in bed at you know you were you know it's like oh my god and i'm sure jim was the same we were in the same boat you know so yeah you're young and so you i, I want to take a step back so boston you know my favorite line in spinal tap it's every you know it's like uh boston's not a big college town don't worry about it so you're at northeastern we have harvard we have mit i mean just the greatest universities in the world um can you let us know where you went to school that got you started down the road to comedy what you know what? Which one of these prestigious institutions kind of got the ball rolling for John Tobin? Well, uh, I wouldn't call them uh, prestigious necessarily, <laughs> but they're they're pretty uh, meaningful in my life. And um, I I went to Catholic Memorial. I you know I was not the best student. I loved CM, but I was not the best student. And I really got to you know Richie Chisholm, who's my friend to this day. He was the dean of discipline and eventually the principal. Uh, but without Richie Chisholm. Uh, I would be working in a circus somewhere in, you know, in, in Missouri. You know, I, I mean, guy, not that that's a bad thing, but, uh, right. but no disrespect to Yakov Smirnov, who is <laughs> Yakov Smirnov, a what lot, a country. What yeah, a country. they get a lot of money yeah, in Missouri. Yeah, he's in uh, Branson, right. right? What is it? He's Branson. in the King of Branson, Missouri. Branson, yeah, Branson's like the knockoff Vegas, right? The old yeah. Vegas, like the everybody, the, the Vegas of the South. Yeah, 
Yeah, David Hasselhoff's still got a residency down there, right? Uh, <laughs> no, he's got oh, a residence down there. Residence, <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Don't hassle the hop. <laughs> where, where, uh, where did you, where after? Oh, cool. Yeah, so I was going to Catholic Memorial, and thank God for Richie. And he got me over the hump. I coached all his kids in T-ball and babysat for his kids. And uh, he was just wonderful to me, and he always has been. Got me a job in the meat department at Stop and Shop. Um, but I was going to... Uh, Enrolled at school, uh, I graduated when I was 17 in 1987, and then uh, Labor Day weekend, Labor Day weekend going into college, uh, my my 17 year old sister, we were eight months apart. She was uh, she was she was premature, obviously. Uh, I was older. I, I I my sister and I are Irish twins as well. Eleven months. Yeah, yeah. So, you know yeah, when you do the math in your in your yeah, my mother yeah. went. I said I said to my parents, "Don't did you have TVs or stuff? You know, other hobby." <laughs> So yeah, I, I, was, Irish foreplay. Brace yourself, Sadie. I'm going back in. You know? Yeah, yeah. I was the. Uh, I was, my mother said the same nursing crew was on when she had my sister. That, <laughs> that, 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 were like, weren't you just here? And, uh, so, but my uh, sister, my sister uh, died in a traffic accident uh, when she was 17, and that just kind of obviously derailed our whole family, and um, and so. I I took I didn't go back to school until October, so I actually enrolled at at I enrolled at Mass Bay Community College, and wow, there were there were two professors, one in particular that was so kind to me and so and got me back up to speed and got me kind of understood what was going on, you know, helped me out, and so eventually, but I, you know, just like high school, my parents made me pay for high school. Uh, I'm the oldest of six, and so uh, we weren't. Poor, but we were, you know, definitely middle class. My dad was construction work and my mother's a daycare provider to this day. Um, so it was just sort of like, that's, you know, the way you want something, you, you got to pay for it, you know? Yeah. So, so I just appreciate it. I had three jobs in high school. Like I deliver the globe in the morning and then, you know, work at Anna's Donuts. I worked at Fenway Park. I worked at Star Market. I worked at Steve Slines Deli. Was any of those jobs tougher to sidebar? Was any of those jobs tougher because I, you and I have the same job than delivering the Sunday Boston Globe? None. Oh, I would, uh, I, but I, to be in the interest of full disclosure, uh, I would uh, seldom sup the uh, this globe with the advertisements because it was so it became so heavy. <laughs> so I, I think I caused a massive flooding issue with the. <laughs> Lots of water and sewer because all the stuff went down the sewer. See, I, I, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, on on the school days, I had like a twenty eight thirty two, you know, on on a route, mile and a half around the house in Wilmington. But on Sunday, I could only do four or five, and then had to come back to the house to get the next four or five. You know, because, it, you know, it's those those literally bigger than phone books. OK, for I, people under I, 30, I a phone small, book. I stole a small, uh, I small, I stole a small shopping cart from, uh, TV, from CBS. You acquired. CBS, you acquired. You know, I don't have the poles on them so you couldn't get it over the door <laughs> it like that. And then we cut the pole off and I would wheel my carriage down the street with a stuff full of the Sunday Globes. Uh, oh, but yeah, I had to do, do two tours with that one. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, but I just did that, and I got in Mass Bay, and you know, just paid as I went. And if I couldn't afford it, then I took some time off, and then eventually transferred the credits uh, to UMass Boston. But before that, I decided, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to uh, 
going to try Connecticut School of Broadcasting. I'm going to do that. that that's, now, my big question is, and Joe and I talked about this for an hour before you came on. Were you watching the movie Loft when you saw the Connecticut Broadcasting ad, or was it Creature Double Feature on 56? It was uh, mostly on the radio. It was, uh, Dick, <laughs> okay. uh, Dick, Dick Robinson from the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. And uh, do you want to be a broadcaster? And he had that. Yeah, but he's it's sound just like Dana Hersey yeah. from the movie Loft, you know? You know, come who we you know, love. Well, we love, yeah. Uh, coming up, we're going to show an unedited version of Dio. <laughs> so <laughs> as much as people, like, you know, make fun of, you know, the Connecticut school, we have a dear friend. He went to Fitchburg with me, humble brag. It wasn't his thing. And after the first semester, he went there. He was the producer of the number one drive show in Detroit for many years. He was the overnight weekend guy at BCN. Say what you want. It literally opened, like, same thing with Dick Doherty. Yeah, there was a price to pay and there was all the, but you got real connections out of there. So many real careers were actually, Joe and I went the other route. We we were lured in by the Babasan commercials because we weren't sure if we wanted to be a model or just look like one. Like one, yeah. Yeah. That was uh, yeah, David Letterman used to, there was a Babasan type of place in New York and Letterman used to play it in the early days of his NBC show. Uh he played the clip. It was a guy coming down like in a shock skin suit to get into a white limo. And he says, and he say, uh, beauty of my business. And he played that forever. And and Letterman would just six months later, just in the middle of nothing, a non he'd just go, Beauty of my business. <laughs> and yeah, it was great. Bob is on AT, uh, uh, ITT Technical. Yep. Yes. Devry. Yeah, all, all these commercials you see, because you, you're home, it's 3.30 in the afternoon, you watch the banana splits and you're 19 years old. Right. That, that's the one that scared me, the tractor trailer one. It's like, yeah. dude, this guy was smoking pot in his parents' basement yesterday watching the banana splits, and now you're putting him behind a big rig. Now he's driving a big rig and he's trying to not knock the egg off the pylon, you know, <laughs> in the parking lot. With the, uh... So uh, I went there. They told me, they actually told me, uh, I was pretty good, but they said with my accent, I wouldn't get a job outside of Dorchester. <laughs> so, you know, when you're starting out and back in that day, you know, you had to have like a Midwestern dialect and speak from the diaphragm. And, you know, there was no regionalization. They didn't want that. But, you know, if you start out, if you're really committed to it, you had to go cover like eighth grade girls volleyball in Bangor, Maine. You know? <laughs> Which so, was pretty great back then. There was this girl who just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, uh, it's as alluring as that was, I, I I was working at Slines Deli and I was dating this girl and she worked at the cells next door, the clothing store. And she worked, she worked with a girl named Sherry and Sherry dated uh, Hank Morse, uh, who was on, he was on the radio. He was on, he was on, he was on Kiss 108. He was like the news guy on Kiss 108 and the traffic guy. And to me, like I grew up listening to the radio, FM and AM radio, mostly AM. Uh, 680 baby, 680, uh, you know, was, was our lifeline. At WBZ, I'd listen to WBZ at night, overnight, because BZ goes out to 38 states at night because of the signal. And people come and call from Ohio and Norm Nathan, uh, Bob Raleigh, Larry Glick, just like having fun overnight. And you're up and you're listening to like these people calling up and it was great. No, Larry Glick, uh, that's a voice. That's a name I haven't heard forever. And that, you know, that's what I listen to at David night. Brednoy, David Brednoy, you know, he had a talk, he had the talk show earlier in the night. He was, he was a brilliant, brilliant guy. I wrote him a letter one time and asked if I could come into the studio and just observe. And he invited me in. I still, oh. have, I still have his typewritten letter inviting me to come in. That's fantastic. Um, that's so, fantastic. So I just loved it. And, but I, but I was, so 
Hank got me a job at Kiss 108. I'd worked overnights and they have a Kiss 108 used to be in the Fells way. It's still in Medford, but it's like in an office building now. But it used to be on the Fells way in this own standalone building. And Kiss 108 was the biggest radio station in the country. It was yeah, the yeah. It, 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 was, it, it was by Wellington Station, right? Yeah, exactly. And it was, right. Uh, it, was, it was there's uh, a Krispy Kreme there now. Right. Because yeah, so my, right? my, my dad was a rocket scientist who worked at te- – uh, it became Tektron, but AFCO Defense System right on that rotary. So I would, you know, I would get dropped off there. My uncle lived in Everett, and we would walk over to, well, you know, to go to Bruins games and stuff. But, yeah, it was the only radio station right there, like here? Like this is, you yeah, know. No, it was, uh, it was, but it was like, it was Maddie Siegel, Dale Dorman. Daryl uh, Dorman. Yeah. Dale used to do afternoons uh, at Kiss and then leave to go to Channel 56 because he was the voiceover guy. Yeah. Yeah. You know? hey, that was my childhood. Yeah. yeah. Listening to Uncle Dale Dorman. Uh, next stop, the Banana Splits. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then uh, uh, Sonny Joe White, uh, Lady D, uh, Diana Steele, Lisa Lips. Lisa, Lisa was Lips. in the morning. Uh, Lisa Lips was the lips of Kiss 108. She was like, right. Wow. Lisa the Lisa logo. Yeah. And there was Lisa. a Strawberries right next to that. There was a Strawberries record right there. Yeah. Lisa Lisa was, uh, she ran into a lot of personal problems. She was an absolute doll. Oh. They relegated to overnights with uh, like Ed McMahon, Kid David. Um, and so I would, there was, AM station was in the back. The music of your life, 1430. It was all, coming off satellite. It was all big band music. Ah. Oh. I'd either work 10 to 6 or, or midnight to 8. But part of my job, in addition to, you know, the music coming in off the satellites, I'd have to play the commercials. They le- might let me do the weather and news at like 4 o'clock to the seven people listening. I mean, you had to wrap your head in tinfoil and stick it in a microwave to pick up the signal. But, uh, <laughs> I, let, but I would go sit with the, the overnight jocks in there, and I'd have to answer the phone at the front desk. And then in the morning, I'd have to open the door for the, for the talent coming on to work on Maddie's show. Include Maddie, the show would start at six o'clock. Maddie wouldn't come walking in until it's six thirty-five. Wow! Uh, you know so the, the front of the show carded, like preloaded and preloaded, and you know music and stuff like that. And then then it would get going. But um, I had a blast working there. But one, I opened the door for a guest, and it was Dick Doherty was um, was opening up comedy clubs, and he was being a guest on Maddie's show to talk about him opening to promote this club that's great so i introduced my my parents used to go see dick darty all the time when they were first dating and first married he was like the happy hour king of the cape and he had a place called the mad russian yeah there's a documentary about that scene yeah like the kings of Con- something the kings of the cape because, uh, uh, amazon prime him, uh, last year yeah it was like uh uh bucky something or other uh uh gordy milne from the mill hill uh dick uh, uh jim plunkett uh, not the Raiders and Patriots quarterback, but the guy, Jim Plunkett, the happy hour guy who's still doing it to this day, which is crazy. Um, but so I just said to Dick, I said, Mr. Doherty, it's really an honor to meet you. My parents used to go watch you. They're big fans of yours. And he he said, how would you like to work at my club? Now, was he do you, honestly? So this is 630 in the morning. Had he gone to bed and came from the club or did he get up early to come in? No, Dick was uh, like Dick was uh, the problem with Dick in all his places was uh, in the seventies and eighties. I think he was his own best customer, mm-hmm. and uh, you know he 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 really struggled in the eighties. He had some real uh, substance problems, and and he cleaned himself up and he helped a lot of comics along the way. But so he would no, he was 
he was on the straight and he told his story and he opened this club and he's going to start opening clubs. And so this was like the first one was light ships. And uh, so I, the next week I'm doing the door at light ships. And uh, I got actually get fired from Kiss, from uh, Kiss What I Eat because <laughs> I that I used to fall asleep in the studio. Like a, I'm in a cold studio. How do you not? Like a, like if if the jock didn't invite me in, you know, if they had a friend in there overnight, whatever, I I would just stay in my the studio and I'm I'm there and by you know you you're full of coffee and everything else and but by three o'clock you're like this, your head's like going. And then my head would, you know, I'd be drooling on the on the control panel. On the <laughs> yeah, you don't have an iPhone to play bedazzled to keep oh, you interested. There was nothing to do. There was, no, there was just nothing. And you'd go rip the uh, AP wire and read the news, you know, and stuff like that. And but uh, they had they installed a dead air meter. Oh, so, uh, so I wasn't playing the commercial, so that I was like leading the league. They posted it. And, oh, leading uh, the league! <laughs> and then someone someone taught me how to uh, the closet, the secret closet where they. So Arnie the Woo Ginsburg, Arnie Ginsburg was the, the man of New England. Yep, and he was he was my boss. Wow. And uh, like my parents couldn't believe I was working for Arnie the Woo Ginsburg, and so they installed this dead air meter in this closet. Someone told me the way to go in and delete the. Oh, uh, brilliant! Dump it! Oh, God. Uh, brilliant! Three times until I got caught by one of the engineers. Um, I wasn't <laughs> invited back, <laughs> but I but I had my job in comedy. I was working an internship at the state house. I was going to UMass Boston, and uh, and it was it was all good. And then, uh, yeah, light shifts lasted about a year, but they they used to uh, pay the comics. You know, on weekends to be a different story, a little bit of a different story, but. We was open seven days a week, and I was there almost every night. And it's just like it's, you're 18, 19, 19, 20. I'm uh, no, yeah, I'm 20. This is uh, 1992. Okay, so, uh, 21, 22. Yeah, 21, 22. Um, and so I, I was in charge of paying the comics, like the but they on the weekdays they would make Dick had a thing <laughs> called Dick Bucks. Oh, and so. He paid the comics in dick bucks, uh, and there were there came in three dollar. It was a three dollar denomination, so uh, <laughs> of course an opener would get uh, one dick buck or two dick bucks, and then the feature would get like three dick bucks, and then the headliner would get like five dick bucks. And it was the only place you could use it was uh, was to buy food, and drink at like the company <laughs> store. Like right. you, you know, you you work in the mine and then you shop at the mine store. <laughs> Right, exactly. So it was all it was a, a local economy, if you will. You know, a uh, they had it was like was everything know, in multiples of two. The bar was great. The bar was uh, you got three dick bucks, but it's a four dollar tab. <laughs> <laughs> the room was great. It was a great room. Like the Boston Harbor was your backdrop, and it was like hundred ten seats. It was great, and uh, and it was packed all the time. And so I'd have to, you know, pay the dick bucks. But downstairs was the, the bar in the showroom. But upstairs was like fine dining. Huh. Like boaters used to dock there. And they had a, a different menu upstairs with like lobster and, you know, champagne and stuff. So, <laughs> but, you know, if you were on the show, you guys were on the show. I just knew you were right there hanging out the hallway. Whatever. Okay, showtime, guys. And let's go and get the show going. Then, I don't know, we're about six months into the thing. And I can't find you. I can't find the comics. Well, where are they? And... Oh, they're upstairs eating. And I'm like, 
upstairs eating. I said, these people, we don't have two nickels to rub together. I'm making six bucks an hour. I don't, and they're making less. I, <laughs> I can't afford upstairs. So I, it turns out someone uh, mimeographed the dick bucks. <laughs> so there were counterfeit dick bucks. So I'd go up and there's a guy like, there's a comedian with like a, like a lobster bib around their neck and like cracking a double stuffed lobster and like taking out the dick bucks, like, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, oh. I haven't worked here that much. Right. So it became a, that's what was going on. They, the dick bucks put the restaurant, lived, it, it sank the restaurant. Oh, wow. Uh, oh. Figuratively. So I was at Dick services. Brilliant. And Dick services. And we're on the out, uh, <laughs> Dick service, Dick passed away in May. 22 23 yeah 23 uh his services weren't until september the joke it was like labor day weekend the saturday at one o'clock on labor day weekend i said even in his passing he's got it's a bad booking how inconvenient you know and, and so we had three months to plan this thing out you, you, you oh. know so but nonetheless, there was a there was a good there was a good sized crowd there, and a lot of you know uh, Chris Zito, Chris Zito get up there and pay great tribute. Corey Rodriguez, people who old timers have worked for him. Uh, Dick and I certainly had a falling out over some business matters. Uh, a couple of years later, he actually got kicked out of all the the places he was in, and the the ownership kept me there. Uh, but we reconciled at the end. The last night of Remington's. And when I was closing, I went over and paid my respects to him because and thanked him for what he had done for me. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's he did, it's, my, he did my parents, my parents' twenty fifth wedding uh, anniversary. They went to Bermuda. Me and my brothers and sisters ran a surprise party for like seventy five people at the house. So when they came home from Bermuda, there's seventy five people in their house for a surprise party. And I hired Dick to. Did you pay him with dick bucks? How you know? <laughs> he did it for, for free. He showed up on his motorcycle with Kathy, his wife, and the uh, and we got everybody assembled in the living room uh, in our house in West Roxbury. He, I'll never forget it. My parents were sitting there on on chairs, and Dick stood in front of our fireplace and roasted my parents oh. and everybody else in the room. I had an aunt who had twelve kids. She was there, and most of her kids were there. My cousins. And Dick looks at my aunt and says, uh, 12 kids. He says, uh, I knew you were a party girl because I could tell from the rope burns on your wrists. <laughs> and it's, that's like, not everybody was cool with the program. <laughs> I, 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 like, uh, I had like two aunts who looked at me very differently <laughs> for the rest of time. Oh. <laughs> it's like, but I loved every, you know, he told my father, because my father was 10 years old and my mother, he said, uh, he said, geez, uh, at your age, you'd, you'd be happy just to get a stiff neck. <laughs> So and just I was just roast killing them, leveling. Well, they probably loved it because they saw him when they were dating. Yeah, loved it because they were fans of his. But some other people were a little bit uh, questionable. So, (laughs) but it was. But he did it. it I was grateful for that. But on the stairs outside of Dick's funeral, so this people I haven't seen in forever. uh, Mike Donovan. I was talking. So I'm talking to Mike Donovan, and Mike Donovan is a historian. Like Mike. Mike will leave a comedy show and he'll go home and write. Well, he's (laughs) written four books on Russian history. Like like books. Russian history. It's crazy. He just writes until like six o'clock in the morning. That's when he's just sort of yeah. He's Mike's just wired very differently than everybody else. But he knows exactly dates and when what clubs open when they you know who performed there. In fact, we gave when we gave uh, Mike the Boston Comedy uh, Legends Award, 
someone on our team had the thoughtfulness enough to find his first stand-up comedy performance was at a place in New York. Now I'm forgetting the name of the place. But a guy on our team found the blueprints for that building in New York. It's now it's still a bar, but it's it's now called a different name. And uh, 48 years ago, Mike worked as he got $48 to perform uh, at this club. Wow. His first paid comedy performance there. So we got the blueprints and we put them in a nice frame and a plaque and memorialized that. And oh. we already we I've already contacted. So we, we gave him a copy and then we the new place is putting a copy up on their wall. Oh, that's fantastic. In New York. I think it's Corning, New York. So we are, we've already reached out to them. We are definitely planning on having Mike up there to do his 50th anniversary show up there That's uh, in, that, in that bar. Uh, and it was just, so it was great. But I'm talking to Mike on the, on the stairs. I said, we were talking about dick bucks. And Mike looks at me, you know, in his way, he says, uh, would you like one? I said, would I like what? He says, he says, I have dick bucks. Oh. I said, you have, you have dick bucks? And he says, oh yeah. He says, I'll send you one. I said, oh my God. I said I would treasure that. Yeah. I I uh about a month later uh my uh just an envelope comes my name on it nothing in it except oh, oh you have God. one. Wow. wow. It's Can Dick's you... face it's Dick's face in the middle. I'm blurring out cuz my background. It's Dick's face in the middle and under it says the legend. Oh. And there's a there's a cow and it says, uh, "Okay, Dick, I got the bull, the bell off, honey." And it was part of his like was something in his act. And this was the place called the comedy. It was the comedy deck, is what he called it at Lightships, oh. Congress Street. Dick Doherty, yuck bucks. Say nice things about Dick and keep on working. That's what it says at the, at the top. Oh. Uh, this this certificate has no cash value, and it, 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 so refund and in, in change will not be given. Tax and gratuity included, so they're for three bucks. So, oh. so I plan on putting it in a frame, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do it with a uh, a one dollar bill, a two dollar bill, and a three dollar. And, 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 and you know, <laughs> in conversation, somebody says that's as queer as a three dollar bill, Dick. And and you could see the light bulb in 1980, whatever, go off over. Is that, that was a- brilliant? I used to, uh, so the second club I ran when light ships closed. I don't even know if Dick really knew who I was. And so I remember I was working at the state house and the guy I worked for, I was lamenting. I said, geez, this, it was so magic because uh, Rogan had just was working there and uh, Burr had just started and uh, Ray Fitzsimmons. There was like, there, there was like a lull. There were a bunch of guys had DePaulo had left. There was a bunch of, there was a, a big Mark Marin had left like in 88, 89, uh, David Cross, that kind of group. But this new group was coming along. Dane Cook was coming. Dane was an improv group called Al and the Monkeys with Robert Kelly uh, and Al Delvaney and this kid Grant, I think Grant Taylor, I think was his name. And they were like the hot thing. And so I was just like, oh, man, that's too bad. That was a special year. That was fun. And, uh, you know, after work, we after after the place closed, we'd go out and hit golf balls into Boston Harbor try and hit the tea party museum and you know it was just it was great and the next night we just come back and do it all over again it was just so much fun so i said to the guy i said he says call him and thank call him and thank him and see you know and any other so i did i called dick and i said i really appreciated the opportunity and you ever do anything in boston again you know i'd be happy to i'd love to work for you he says well i'm opening a new place up in andover 
uh, <laughs> it's the old chick land. And so I thought it was like a closed strip joint. And there was going to be like a lot of like strippers who are now waitresses in the place. This is going to be great. <laughs> I'm going to work in this place. And little chick land was a chicken restaurant. Uh, <laughs> so I spent, I would literally every Thursday, Friday and Saturday drive to Andover. I mean, you drive it up to Andover. I worked at the state house and, you know, work and drive up to in rush hour up to Andover. Sometimes it would take me an hour and a half. E- easy. Yeah. Up there. And, uh, but when they first opened up that Grill 93, honest to God, it's like it, it, they were printing money. Printing money. Yep. And, and it was real like, money, it was, not like dick box. No, yeah, real money. Yeah, too. It was actually real, <laughs> real U.S. currency. And, uh, you know, there's no ATM cards or charge cards. You'd be using, it's all cash. So I, I would have to. I still lived at home at the time. And uh, I remember I was like 23 and I come home. And Dick would have me drop it off on Saturdays. He had a brownstone on Com Ave. I'd have to come in through an alley. And then I had a key to the back door. His offices were downstairs from his his condo. And I'd open the door and then I'd have to take a bag of money. Sometimes it was six, seven, eight thousand dollars and put it into a safe. I have anxiety about my that. father. My father would my father worked construction and he worked two days a week at a liquor store. My father was up at 4.30 every morning, uh, you know, after a few Budweiser's and dinner and mash, he was in bed, you know, like <laughs> eight o'clock. He was out, you know, uh, on during the week. And so they lived, my parents lived up on the third floor. Um, and their, their their bedroom was up there. So I remember I, I'd come home, you know, be getting home from the club and I'd just, you know, I'd be in my underwear and I'd be sitting there counting the money and, you know, having a Budweiser and watching Letterman. And or Saturday Night Live or whatever. And so I get all this money splayed across the thing. And I, I'll never forget it. I look to my left and there's my father with his hair up in the air, uh, wearing a pair of tidy whitey underwear. And he looks at me, he says, what the fuck is going on? I think he thought I was like a drug dealer or something, yeah. right? And I said, well, this, this is, he goes, whose money is that? I said, it's Dick's. It's, the, it's from the club. He goes, what, what, what are you doing with it? I said, well, I'm counting out and put it because I'm going to go deliver it tomorrow. He goes, what, when? what do you mean? I said, well, after the second show tomorrow, I, I bring it to his house. I said, he said, what time? I said, well, like 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning. He, dropped. he said, so I t- he goes, where do you drop it off? I said, I go in the back of this alley. And now as I'm describing it to him, I'm like, wow, this is pretty crazy what I'm doing. It's, it's, it's called Crime Alley. I just yeah. go to Crime Alley. <laughs> my, my father says, are you out of your mind? I, like, you, he goes, people would rob you for a nickel. What are you doing? And uh, so, but I just kept on doing it, but I realized how crazy that was, what, yeah. you know, but uh, thankfully, uh, not going to win, nothing ever happened. <laughs> I'm, I'm, quite, I'm quite sure all the tax records were you, so you had the tax forms for the oh, yeah. things to declare. Okay, right. No, I'm, of yeah, course. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure that was, I think we're uh, beyond, well, that wasn't my responsibility. That was, uh, <laughs> that was Dick's, but uh, uh, I was, uh, it, but it's just one of those stories where, like I laugh like some of these clubs now that like they're so way overstaffed and you know, people, well, we need this. And I'm like, not to sound like old man and like did it, but I used to have to go set up room for Dick or yeah. for his, for these guys. I'd have the speakers in my car and set up the speakers with the stands and unfold the stage and get everything ready. You just did it yourself. And then you took the tickets and you sat the person and then people waiting. And then you went up and introduced the first comic and it's like, 
it was like a one man operation. Well, know? that's that's still a thing because you know I, I work a lot with. I'm quite sure you're friendly with or friends with Mike Katropis, who yeah. he he books all these shows. I got to open for Steve Bjork. It was up in New Hampshire, really nice place. It's this farm type thing, big tent, hundred people but he has a little stage that he it's a three thing the speakers on the stands and it's the now everything the apps on the phone so you can if you didn't buy a ticket you know you can just swipe there type thing but there's lots of those yeah it's it's all good you know so and you got two or three of these a weekend and in mike will be here but have another show being produced over there and they'll have a couple trusted people running it like a it's a good living it's a hustle but it's right. a good living over the last year, I've been a real student of a lot of this. And, and lucky for me, you know, I got to go out to L uh, because of 20 years there, just working in the industry, I got to do like the comedy store and stuff because a friend of mine books different places. But it's still the same thing. It's like there are these working comics. Everybody who I see at the open mic and the kids, it's all I got to get that Netflix special. That's that's what people think that the comedy train is. I'm going to for this open mic in Lowell on a Tuesday and somebody's going to walk in and see me. And I'm, but the reality is there's so many great working comics that if you're willing to do a Knights of Columbus on Tuesday down at the Cape and Friday, you might be doing Nick's and then Saturday you're doing one of Jimmy Q's places, you know, up in Maine. If you're willing to drive a little bit, you can have a really great life, a really great living, but you're working. Yeah. Listen, I, you know, I, I make an analogy. Uh, it's something I heard Charlie Baker, uh, Governor Baker, who's now head of the NCAA, you know, was at a, uh, a talk in Boston at a law firm. We were, we, I was there and he was great. And he was talking about, you know, he's talking about running the NCAA and he talked about football and he said, you know, he said everybody concentrates on like in the power five conference and, you know, big schools. And he said, look, my kids played division three college football. And he said, they're every bit as a college athlete as yeah. a kid going to Alabama, Georgia, they're co you know, collegiate athletes. They're every bit of the same, the same dedication. It's the same. Um, and I think it's comedy the same way. You don't have to sell out Madison Square Garden to be a successful, no. be a successful comic. There are, man, I go to, you know, I travel around a fair amount and, uh, you know, both for Northeastern and for, uh, you know, for comedy, obviously. And sometimes I end up in these small towns and I'll just go check out a comedy show. I was in Fort Collins, Colorado last year and check it out. And I just, there's a show called The Ford or something like that, like 150 seats. This kid gets up, this kid, Stephen Rogers, who is actually, uh, he's engaged to Caitlin Palufo, who's fantastic. He absolutely leveled the room. I, I to to a degree that I've never seen before. I was in I was in Wichita, Kansas, last year with Norm Lavalette, my partner with Lot Boston, and we went to a comedy show and at the Looney Bin. There was a guy named John Morgan. He calls himself the Raging Cajun, <laughs> Louisiana, and I've never seen an act like this before. Start to finish, 45 minutes of just destruction of a crowd. And these are people who, they, he just goes across that little network, Louisiana, right. Texas, Arkansas, Kansas, Oklahoma, and he makes a fine living. And that's all good. It doesn't, not to disparage the people who sell up at a square garden. The, you know, no, that, you know. That, that's all well and good, but... It, the people, the guy who performs at the, you know, the Chuckle Hut in Bangor, Maine is every bit 
the comedian. Well, that's it. In Los Angeles. You know, we've become friendly with, with Steve Bjork and he was a national guy. He ended up becoming a single dad of four kids and he can't do the cruise ship. He can't do the big tours, but he supports his kids because if you follow him on Instagram or Facebook, he's here Thursday. He's here Friday. He's here Saturday. Might be a private show here and there. Sometimes he's doing a early Saturday show and a half hour away. He's closing out, you know, here. I mean, you know, I'll see him. Him, him and Chris Zito, you know, and, and Boston at one thing. And then the next night he's middling here and all these guys. But we know, you know, McHugh does a, a boat trip a month. You know, um, Jim Colton does a boat trip a month. They don't have to be the the playing the Wilbur to really put your kids through college. And that's and that's the thing that I found out. It's like, look, the same thing. It's like there's 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 career path in hosting. If you like it, there's a career path. And if you're willing to do this, uh, well, not willing to, if you're lucky enough to do this, but the goal is to be as good as you can as a comic. Don't worry about the national stuff and, and all yeah, that just because put the, just put in the work and the rest will, the rest will happen. Right. I mean, you just, you just got to put in the work. I always ask people, they say, well, I want to, I said, just put in the work, just do the work. You know, Tony V says it, you know, you know, young kids ask him, you know, well, people just get into comedy, you know, what do I do to get better? He says, well, you're not going to get better sitting home eating Cheetos watching uh, Murder, She Wrote reunions. Yep. You know? I mean, it's sort of like, uh, you so, know, it's just, you have to be on a stage. And I don't care if it's in front of three people or 300. It's just, that's a process. And you just what, described my Saturday night, by the way. <laughs> oh. It's actually a very underrated Saturday night. Actually, I got to go soon because Murder, She Wrote's marathon starting. Yeah, yeah. So I got, it's, it's funny that you mentioned Tony and me in that. So when I got to open for Tony, again, it was because bogus is a sweetheart and he, and he put me up in the middle uh at the luna theater in lowell 40 people there that tony v did was opening at fenway park in front of forty thousand people <laughs> and the 40 people got the same show that he gave the forty thousand people at fenway and he joked about it you know but we, i, we, I brought, we brought bill burr uh bill's first performance first paid performance was at nick's comedy stop in 1992 wow. so the friday before um uh, the friday before the sh before uh he played su sunday at fenway park he came in with his film his documentary film crew into nicks he sat with tony they filmed a, an hour-long conversation between tony and bill no notes just sitting there at the bar talking about boston comedy just effortlessly the stories it was honestly it was comedy pornography it was it was just sit there and watch that yeah and to listen to it and then we got Bill, we got Bill an original Nick's Comedy Stop shirt, T-shirt that the waitresses used to wear back oh. in the 80s. So we put it in a frame. So it's funny because we told his crew, he had a, uh, uh, they filmed and he already walked out the door and we told his crew that we had something. So I'd go way back with Bill, and, you know. Those stories up, just. And, and, you know, Bill, Bill's, Bill's uh, he's not a touchy-feely guy. And really? Oh, really? On. You don't yeah. say. Huh. Yeah, but he comes up the stairs and he says, I can hear him down the stairs. He goes, hey, what? And so we have a thing <laughs> in, a, in a frame. And I, so I'm standing, I'll send you guys the video after this. Um, Is there he, anything funnier than an, an indignant Boston? What? He says, what? He says, uh, so we, I said, hey, I just want to give this to you. And he sees, and there's a plaque and it, it's, it's a t-shirt in the frame with a plaque saying the date of his first day at Nick's, your first performance at Nick's. And Bill was like, he was genuinely touched by it. He says, he says, I'm not going to lie. This is pretty freaking cool. And he said, 
he said, I was coming up the stairs and I'm thinking, oh, you had a signed shirt from like Bill Belichick or something. And uh, like he was just really touched by no, it. No, that's wonderful, John. And so he he performed, he ran through his set for Family Park that night at Nick's Comedy Stop in front of 100 people. That's And my two, my two sons were there. I brought my two sons. Tony opened up. They did the show just like they're going to do at Fenway. I put 100 of his fans and the people, that did his disciples in there. And it was just, it was magic. It was magic. Oh. And one of my boys turned around to me. He said, he says, I think he's the funniest person I've ever seen in my life. And I said, yeah, I said, it's just, I'm so, I'm so immensely proud of him. I really am. I'm so proud of well, him. Here, um, here's something that I love about this community that I found how I've been treated by some of these people who you know, when I would come back from LA, my sister said, Oh, Christine Hurley, I'm going to take you to go see her. Oh, Bjork. Cause, cause you know, um, Tom Papa and, and Brian Regan, my favorite when she's, you know, saw Steve. Regan, Bjork, she's Regan, like, Regan's my favorite. I know Gavin Regan. Yeah. Re- Re- Regan's my guy. Like, like I, but what I love is Joe Rogan is Joe Rogan. He remembers where he came from. When Mike Donovan's book came out, he had Mike on. You know, the fact that Bill had Tony V on his show, you know what I mean? It's like, like the fact that they, they've not forgotten like the shoulders they stood on to get where they are, which, which I think is great. Funny story about uh, Joe and Bill and Joe and Bill have taught me and I've since apologized to both of them. (laughs) Taught me a great lesson that really, I mean, the Chappelle's, the Eddie Murphy's, the Pete Davidson's, you know, the, the shooting stars, if you will, the people who make it when they're 19, those that's they, just, they're like comets. It's just few and far between. It takes, it really takes 10 years to find your voice and who you are and your maturation and, you know, life experience and, you know, stuff like that. I remember running for city council for the first time when I was 24, 25 years old and people who I deliver the globe to, neighbors who I assume, when I knocked on their door for the, I assume they're going to vote for me and they pull me aside and say, John, you know, uh, you're a good kid. You're going to get your chance, but you, you need to learn how to pay a mortgage for us to have a, right, you know, right. they wanted a little bit more life experience so I could reflect what, and I, but did I, you I, tell I, him you went to Connecticut school broadcasting? Did you? Yeah, I used did my you? deepest voice. Well, how about now? <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work. So, uh, and I get up my grease pen and edit the, uh, the tape, you know, <laughs> but I, but I got it. And then I've, I've got it in common. I remember sitting, well, I, anyway, I, I'm dating this, dating this other girl. And I'm 18. She's 17. Her sister was 19. She she was gorgeous. The only other person better looking at her in my mind was her sister. And they worked at the Newport Creamery in Newton, which is only 10 minutes from my house in Westrogsbury. So after Louisa's shift or after, you know, if her sister was working, I drive them home and I go home, watch TV with them, you know? And uh, so they worked with this kid, Joe at Newport Creamery. And so he worked there. Catherine had a boyfriend and Joe Work there, so I went to go pick up my girlfriend and, and her sister doesn't get in the car. I said, "What? what where's Catherine?" Oh, oh uh, Joe took her home tonight. I said, "Well, she's got a boyfriend." She said, "No, no, uh, Joe. Uh, Joe wants to be a comedian. He makes tapes at home, and he he wants to listen listen in the car. His eight track. Oh, eight track." <laughs> I'm like, "Oh my god, this is what a sad sack." And so, like a week or two later. <coughs> My girlfriend calls me up on a Monday afternoon. She says, you want to go to Nick's Comedy Stop tonight? And I said, it's Monday night. She said, yeah, it's open mic night, but Joe's going to be on and we're going to go see it. Well, me and, me and my sister will pick you up. And I said, oh, I got to see this. So 
we go and he's dreadful. His whole family ah. is dreadful. And he came home with us. He drove. So I'm in the back seat with him. The girls are up front driving. And and I'm being a wise ass to him. He says, how do you think I did? And I said, oh, you're going to be a star. The sky's the limit. You're going to be, you're going to kill it and the whole thing. I'm being a real jerk. So that's 1989. Three years later, I start working in the, for Dick at Light Chips, making six bucks an hour. And that Joe is Joe Rogan, who uh, fresh off a $300,000 holding deal with Disney, prior to news radio, like everything, $100 million of Spotify. Whatever so, happened to that guy? <laughs> so, but it really, and I've, I've told this to Joe and I've told this to Bill, I, they both taught me a lesson. It just, you're going to let the process play out. You're going to people, see people respect the process, respect the grind, and keep your mouth shut. As long as they're doing the work, let it happen. So what I'm hearing is you're basically telling Joe to stop telling me to quit. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah, See, right. Joe. See, I might not. I might suck, and in five years, I'll probably still suck. Never mind. Uh, honestly, <laughs> I, I only told you once, but it echoes in your head a hundred times a day. Yeah. Listen. I mean, the people hottest on you, your friends and stuff like that. But they're really oh, we're not cool. friends. Oh, hold on. No. That's, that's we're not friends. We just for thirty years we've he been. He pays tolerant. me in jock bucks. Yeah, Chuck Bucks. This, this could be you, but with uh... oh, dear, John, <laughs> please, uh, please, before we get too far away from that, please, before you frame the dick bucks, scan it and put it on the internet, please. Oh, let I, people I, see. I plan on doing it. I oh, plan on please. Doing it. Oh, oh my god. About it. Yeah. Yes. Oh, uh, I, I wrote a note that I want for the screen cap when we post this. Please hold it up to next to your face, so that's when we post the show. That's the one photo I want to show. Not the laugh, Boston, which you're doing fine with. Not oh, the Knicks. I want you in the tick bucks being the screen capture. I say it all the time, and it's it's uh, it, you know, comics are human beings too. They get problems just like everybody else, but they're they're asked and that you know to put aside their own problems to get on a stage in front to take away and make people feel better about themselves for two hours about their own problems that's that's my friend dante the comic he, you know he puts out these tips for comics he's been doing it for 30 years and the one that i really loved i think the best exactly what you're saying there's no reason to do comedy other than you have to it's a compulsion if you're doing it to be rich, if you're doing it to be famous, it's it's not going to happen. Let's just put it out. But if you're doing it because you see the world this way and you got a funny take on it, it's a compulsion. Joe and I do comedy things or whatever ever since I was a kid. Life is one kick in the balls after the next. And if you can give somebody you know, something to chuckle about to make them forget the 90 minute show or the half hour sitcom or the sketch. If you can put something out there, if you can be that umbrella in a shit storm of life for somebody, because your funny take on this made them for a couple minutes, forget the overdue bill or the asshole boss. That's why you do it. I 100% concur. And it's just to uh, people get, you know, they get, you know, having a fight with their spouse or they get a dispute at work or they, the kid is, they got a kid who's out of control or things. Yeah, it, it, life is hard. And so you're just, you're giving a little bit of a cocoon. You think about a comedy show, those people in that room, the customers, the comedians, that'll be the one and only time in the history of the world that those individuals are in the same room together. Right. Same time. So every show is in a different experience. And 
you get different personalities in there and people in different moods and and how that plays and creates kind of this I I firmly believe this that in this crazy crazy world it seems to get crazier all the time I I firmly believe that comedy clubs are kind of the last uh thing things on where free speech uh ought to be fiercely protected uh and celebrated you, know, you go to a comedy show if you go to a comedy show to be offended do not come don't come what? know your audience and at the same time dude you paid to come in here granted you go to a Knights of Columbus and it's a fundraiser for sure. Bedford High Girls softball maybe not be all diarrhea jokes but if you're going into a right. nick what I love is when you do put something out there you know again Steve York has this bit about shopping and percentages of milk I was in the store I'm looking for milk I start laughing to myself monotically I take a picture oh. I sent it to my sister and I'm like and I, I do the punchline from the bit and she called me a half hour later and said, today was a rough day. And when I got your text to the picture of the milk and it yeah. just made her day and what you're doing COVID. And I don't know what was tougher for you dealing with the college situation through COVID or comedy, but the fact that you've got through both of those and what you're letting people put out there, a calling that you have that lets these people do this. And when you talked about what Dick did, how many people are going to be talking over the next 40 years, Tobin was the guy who put me up first. You know what? Tobin put me, I got to do my first real gig. I got to do my first middle. I got to do my first headline. I got to do my first host through this. I mean, endless yeah, number. I, I appreciate that. And it, 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 it does mean a lot. And you kind of take a look back and, you know, I've been involved in this for 32 years and there's just been so many wonderful experiences. I mean, these, you know, these comics and these experiences, Life is about experiences. You can, I don't care what you own. That can't, can't take it with you. The thing they can't take away from you is, is experiences. And and just, and the experiences are not just for the customers. They're also for people like us because you, you love doing it. You just love being part of the process of being part of this crazy dysfunctional community of all of us. And you think about the comedy community uh, across the country. It's really not that large. Like it's not. You, when you take it in the aggregate, you know, comics, uh, owners, bookers, producers, staff, servers, runners, bartenders, how many people are you really talking about? Uh, uh, 10,000, maybe? maybe. No, less. no. I mean, maybe because less. because it's it, there, there, there's, there's a Dick Doherty here who has four or five rooms. There's right. a Mike Katrobis there who has six or seven rooms. There's a Jim McHugh there. So there might be 10,000 Knights Columbus and these places and the Knicks, it, it, but yeah, maybe it's less, maybe uh, it may be thousand. It's, it, it's in the, in totality, it's really a small, so everybody kind of knows everybody and kind of, um, and that's, you're, you're kind of part of something special and to, and to go into a club into another part of the country where, uh, listen, I love going to the clubs when nobody knows who I am, you know, I can have a couple right. of in the back and just enjoy the show. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, but, you know, to go and have this kind of to go to Los Angeles. So I think I'm going this week, and to I'm gonna I'm gonna end up I'm gonna be having drinks and dinner with like four or five people I haven't seen in a couple of years, like people, comics and people in the business and stuff like that. It's kind of like this this kind of family, and uh, it's 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 really it's been such a such a great. I can't believe it. I'm 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 one of the luckiest people ever because I grew up loving comedy, and I'm kind of involved in it. And uh, it's been nothing but, you know, I mean, this, listen, I, sometimes I miss being the door guy. 
That, right. That was, what, it was an easier time. You didn't have to worry about payroll and health insurance and <laughs> rent and mortgages and and you know stuff like that. But that all that's all part of the deal, right? Yeah. You take that responsibility on, and there's people who count on you, and so you got to give you got to give it your best uh, all the time because there's people who rely on you. One of the things that I think I've noticed, I'm really happy to see that's changed in the Boston comedy scene over like maybe the last decade. More women comics are getting more headlining spots. It's just you think of all the women, 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 and people of color. Absolutely, you know, fantastic. It's like I don't know if there's a funnier person than Hurley out there. Like I maybe she was on the show last night. She was on on the show last night with Mike with Mike Donovan. She closed out the show. You know, in the Norwood Theater, it was 600 people there. Yeah. And just you know, it was it's crazy and to see her story is great, and she's she's uh, uh, her she and her husband Jimmy are great friends, and the thick skin that that guy has. He says in Iraq, uh, it's all good because he goes home and sleeps on a big bag of money. <laughs> you know, he, but he endures it. There's a new wave of people coming in that you know. Uh, I want to say her name right, uh, Emily Rudowski. Rudowski. Emily, yeah. Yeah. I've seen her four or five. She had one bit. I opened for her. She had one bit that resonated so hard with my wife and like three or four of her friends are there. And it was every other comic was me. You know what I mean? But that she's, she's killing great. it. Kelly McFarlane. Kelly. Uh, yep. Uh, Carolyn Plummer. Plummer. Uh, I, I just saw Jess her Cassiano, with Jess Casciano, who's been running the longest open mic in the in the, the city. I think it goes, it goes over 20 years. She's a neighbor of mine here in West Roxbury. Um, which mic is that uh it's at the green dragon okay yep yep i know the, and the then they going on for forever i uh, saw i saw i saw i saw her open for Crescido and bjork uh jen howell and then i saw her open for plumber and it, they were the two that was probably one of the best shows you know jen howell and her uh there's another woman laura sims who we had on the podcast who's a tony oh. v disciple and it's just great that uh sheer lynn is an yep. up-and-comer uh doing uh cook doing caroline I mean, cook listen, listen for a period of time in the city uh a long period the women and people of color had to leave in order to in order to come back again right you had to go prove yourself and so that's because you have to be really, I, I, you know, just, I know we're rapping, but I, there was one instance, I've, I've grown up all my life in Boston, um, but there was one particular time, I think it was like 2003, 2004, I was invited to go see John Leguizamo, his uh, one-man show at the, um, at the it was at the Colonial, I think it was at the Colonial Theater. The Friday night, I, the Broadway in Boston guy, and then Ann Sheehan, who still works for Broadway in Boston, so I sat with them, and it was the one, the first time uh, in my life being in a venue in Boston, whether it's Fenway Park or Gillette Stadium or the Garden uh, or a theater or a comedy club, where I was the distinct minority. Oh, great. And it was, Leguizamo was unreal. And at one point he broke the fourth wall and he says to the crowd, where are all my Colombians at? Where are my Venezuelans at? Where are my Puerto Ricans at? And it was like, and it really, it that night taught me a real lesson that's never, you know, if you build it and you make people feel welcome, yeah, they will come and they will embrace it. So nothing gives me, we are very, we try and be very intentional on presenting many different voices and different, I mean, we have shows in Russian, Chinese, uh, uh, Spanish, uh, I don't know any of those languages, uh, but I know the language of laughter. And I know right. that when people come in, you make them feel welcome. It's in their native tongue. 
But even like we had a we had a black woman, Miss uh, uh, Jess Hilarious. She's out of Baltimore. She was like a TikTok or YouTube star, but she developed an act. Her her brother was a you know a big comic in Baltimore, Desi. She actually worked on an act. Some of these YouTubers you bring in on Monday, Tuesday night, they act a little thin. And quite honestly, some of the crowd they don't, they don't really care about an act. They just want to get a selfie with them. Oh, yes, I've seen those. I've seen those. I, don't put those, I mean, I I know that's a part of the business. We do have a lease to pay. I don't put them up on Fridays and Saturday nights. I put up. Right. We do we, it dedicated to the art of stand up comedy on those nights. But if someone's if a TikTok person's going to bring three hundred people in on a Monday night, why wouldn't you, right? Yeah. And so it's why places host host open mics on dead nights. You're going to bring hilarious went up there two days. It was uh, five days before Christmas. Before COVID, I don't know, 18, 19. Uh, I think every black woman who lived in the city of Boston was at those two shows. That's fantastic. And I watched, I watched from the wings from the, the show and someone, someone the next day said, how was she? I said, she's, she's solid. She's got an act. I said, but you know, the funny thing is she wasn't talking to me. Right talking to me i mean there were women falling out of their chairs but they related to her and they related to her life story because they were living it and they had or had lived it and going through it and they saw her as kind of the next generation of someone that they had paved the way to make it so that she could be on stage 100 in that respect and so you have to with all the shows you have to be really intentional and inviting to people and if you just if it's across the board just kind of you know, the same, it's just, that's no good for anybody. And no, so, I, I mean, I mean, when I, opportunities. I mean, that's what I love again, when great bogus host shows, you'll have different ethnic, you know, the people of color, ethnicities. And it's great because when I go to comedy shows, I either go with Joe or my sister or my wife or all of us. And if it's four middle-aged white guys talking about not having sex with their wife, eh, you know, but like I said, when we saw Emily and she had this one specific bit that it was a great night, 90 minutes solid comedy, but that bit resonated with her and her two best friends who came to see my show and they walked out her fans. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And I, you know, I learned a lot from Patrice O'Neill uh, and knew Patrice really well and uh, spent a lot of time driving in my car with him, you know, to and from Worcester. And, uh, you know, he, he was a guy, he, he had a leaf, you know, right. I, of course, Patrice, and I'm not to speak, you know, but. Patrice didn't really stick to his time either. Yeah. Patrice, I, I, Patrice, 15 minutes, he, he cut you an album, you know, I, but, so you can't really do that. So, uh, you know, I, I but he, he's someone who, who brought me so much great joy. I just wish sometimes that I had recorded our conversations. Uh, they'd go, they'd be platinum albums, oh. <laughs> like some of the, just how funny he was, but how enlightening he was uh, to me and his view of the world. And, you know, you, you, hear, you hear people say, oh, I don't agree with, uh, I don't agree with what Chappelle said. I don't agree with, with so-and-so, what she said. And I'm like, you're really not allowed to disagree with them. You may not like it. You may not think it's funny, but you can't, that's their point of view. That's how they see the world. So you can't disagree with that. Uh, <laughs> you may not like it, but be, and that's fine. That's your choice, but um just these different point of views and these different and points of view that we don't have, we haven't experienced that they bring it to light, you know? And I, I just think there's no more greater kind of diversity in the world than people getting along better than, than comedy. Um, and, you know, all kinds of different people, all shapes, all sizes, all, all sexualities, all everything, you know, just come together and, uh, and laugh. 
They create magic. For so the last, the last thing I want to ask. So I have a 16 year old son who I was in New York. I go yeah. to do an open mic and the guy's like, Hey, you're going to go up. He never did it. He did it. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. At the same time, he fell down the rabbit hole of sci uh, political science. Like he's in the ninth grade now. And I told him, it's not Fox News. It's not CNN. It's not MSNBC. What's going on in your backyard is so much more fascinating. So somebody who is political scientist, which, by the way, political science is the best Randy Newman song ever. Anyways, it, so if you're telling a 16 year old who is looking at politics as a path or comedy, are you saying comedy, politics or no, no, do something else. Shovels, shovel dirt. I would uh, listen, do what you love, do what you love and do what your passion is. And, you know, who cares? I mean, I always encourage people, despite the climate, I mean, I couldn't imagine myself running for office again these days. You know, uh, you know, I envision myself being mayor of Boston. That's what I wanted to do. That's the path I was on. And then higher ed came calling. And and I never in a million years thought I'd work in higher ed. I drove by Northeastern a million times in my life, never envisioned myself there. And I've never regretted one day of it, you know, and I'm still in politics. I just do it at Northeastern um, and, and, and then still deal with everybody based on the experience I've had. And then comedy. I mean, I, if my kids wanted to get into the comedy business or run for office, I would, you know, totally support it. I, I think you need more people to run for office. That's what makes the world go round. And, and, uh, and again, the same thing as in comedy, I think in office, when you have different voices and different perspectives, it just it's supposed to make everything better. It's not supposed to be so di divisive. And there ought to be a respect for that. You know, there was a guy named Chuck Turner I sat next to on the city council. Uh, uh, we talk about vastly different. You know, I'm a white guy from, you know, West Roxbury and, 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 and Mattapan, Boston. Chuck was a, you know, black guy, a Black Panther, came to, from Cincinnati to go to Harvard. He was a union organizer. It would talk about distinctly different. He'd been elected two years earlier. Uh, I wasn't even sworn in yet for my first term. And he tried to, he was the chair of the redistricting committee, tried to redistrict my committee, my, my, my uh, office. It was my third time running. I finally win. And I was about to <laughs> have up my district. So we didn't speak for the first couple of months because it was, and we sat next to each other. And I saw Chris Rock uh, over at the Comedy Connection. We are. City council meetings were on Wednesday. On a Tuesday night, Chris Rock did a practice show at the Comedy Connection in Faneuil Hall. And I brought my wife, and we went. It was and it was a it was two hours. He had his notes up on stage, and everybody knew what the the game was, what the deal was, and he was awesome. He was just awesome. But so I I come in, I come in on Wednesday, and uh, uh, Chuck's already in the chamber. We the meeting hasn't started yet, so I sit down, and so I said, "Hey, uh, Chuck." And he kind of turns around to me and he says, what's up? Because we this most words we've communicated. <laughs> right, right. I said, uh, I said, Chuck, I was across the street last night at Faneuil Hall at the Comedy Connection. And I saw Chris. I said, do you know who Chris Rock is? He said, comedian? I said, yeah. I said, I saw him last night. I said, I got to tell you. I said, during the show, I was thinking about you. And he said, he said, you were thinking about me? And I said, yeah. I said, Chris Rock says some things that I said, I love him. I said, but he says some things. I'm like, wow, that is <laughs> not the way I think. You know, that's not the way, you know, I said, I was thinking about you. I said, Chuck, I, I said, I disagree with you 60% of the time. I said, 
but I know it's coming from a you it's 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 real. It's coming from a place, and you have a different perspective than I based on your life experience. And I, I said, you know, got me thinking. If we have thirteen people on this body who all look alike and acted alike and dressed alike and talked alike, it wouldn't be much of a democracy, now would it? And, he and says, that changed. And the next three weeks, he was renting Chris Rock movies like on Redbox, oh. <laughs> and then coming and giving me reviews on them. Oh, and well, our, it, our, our relationship changed well, uh, from then on in. Chuck ended up going to prison, and uh, we wrote to each other. Oh, uh, and uh, I still have some of the letters. And uh, talk about an unlikely kind of. I, we weren't chumming around and hanging around on weekends, but it stuff. changed. It was a change. It was a change because, and that was because of. That was because of comedy. That's that, the you know, I think we wrap it up because I don't think we get a better story about how politics and 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 and, and bridging gaps through comedy can happen. Um, no, that I mean, it's wonderful. That I, that's a story I haven't heard before, and I think it's we need a lot more of that. You know, people think Massachusetts is this. Three of our last five governors have been Republican. Charlie Baker would have won a third time by more than he won the second time, but yet he had a great working relationship with the mayor, the mayors, uh, you know, uh, uh, with the legislature, with the speaker, with the Senate president, with the two senators, with the two senators, you know, bipartisan approach and Charlie Baker would be an unbelievable president of the United States. But the problem is he wouldn't be able to get out of the, uh, he wouldn't be able to get out of like some of these states out of their out of their primaries. But that's why we're so lucky. And and that story about you reaching out through a Chris Rock set is just absolutely everything. So because uh, because we could we we could go another nine hours. But so right now, um, laugh laugh Boston and Nick's. Where are some of the other places where that you 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 think are the uh, spots to go to see comedy? Because I don't I know. I Laugh like seeing live music. Knicks. We've got a great room down at Gillette Stadium uh, for the crafts. Uh, it's the comedy scene. We're in a beautiful room. That's one of my favorite rooms in our kind of arsenal. Uh, we're in, in the off Cabot in Beverly in a partnership with the Cabot Theater in Beverly. That place is killing it and doing really, really well. Uh, we're in we're in MGM in the casino in Springfield. Uh, that, do, 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 uh, who, who goes to those rooms? Are those because my wife saw John Mulaney taper special his special there. Is that the same room or is it a different room? That's a different. That's a that's okay. a different room. But uh, we got. Uh, but we also do one nighters at the Schubert Theater with our partners at the Schubert Theater. Oh, fantastic. Uh, we book. We have shows. We have Nikki Glazier coming this summer to uh, the Cape Cod Melody Tent. She's uh, she's a killer. Awesome. And uh, you know we've had you know I had. I had Sebastian Maniscalco there like six years ago. Hmm. Um, we've had, you know, we have, we've got Dice, we've got Inner Dice Clay coming to the Schubert Theater in March and then out Springfield the night after. Um, so we've got a, you know, just got a plethora of things going on. Uh, uh, but we also, you know, we, you know, we've got Will Noonan show, you know, kind of a workout night at Capo downstairs in a beautiful room at Capo in South Boston every Wednesday night. Just yeah, I have a lot of friends who, on, who do on, that. Keep, keeping people working, keep the farm system going so that when someone, a headliner takes off to New York or L.A. or wherever, or Austin, as it is the case these days, we can replace them. We need to constantly be growing and uh, nurturing talent to replace folks who move on. And and so it's a, it's a constant cycle, and it's just, uh, you know, who knows – who knows what the next several years bring? It's always changing as a ball. You just got to make sure you change with it. And are you on the socials? And 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 what's the best social? What what are you on the most? And if somebody wants to follow you, where do they follow you? 
Oh, I know it's going to sound old, but I'm, you know, Facebook, uh, but I'm on Instagram. Uh, you know, I, I'm a, only a voyeur on Twitter. I, you know, I think writing on Twitter is like writing yeah, on the bathroom, yeah. bathroom wall. There's some, some issues I follow. So I'll just, I'll just watch. I don't post anything on it. Uh, but, you know, I, I tend to think I'm probably the most, someone says they couldn't get a hold of me. I'm like, hmm, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm, so I, so the, People want they can find me. So, uh, but it's, but again, I'm not the, I'm not the show. It's the people that we put up on stage with the show. And uh, you know, I I learned a long time ago. You know, there's different bookers into people and people in the business and some people who are more or older and more established. Who to your face told you they wanted you to succeed, but behind your back they were trying to kill you. Yeah. Uh, I just it's like in Madagascar. You know, I just learned over the years. It's like a, the scene with all the penguins and. Even the tourists, they think the zoo is closed, and here comes another family. Yep. The penguin says, and the older penguin says, "Just smile away, boys. Smile Just away. smile away, John." So seriously, thank you for you know what you've done for the Boston comedy scene on behalf of somebody, two people who love comedy. How you got through COVID you know, kept these clubs going and stuff like that and coming back from it is just absolutely fantastic. But, but literally I like going to see concerts. I like going to plays, but there's nothing better than, than live comedy. There re there really isn't nothing better than a good 90 minute solid show. I, uh, 100% concur. And I'm on my way to lap Boston to, uh, to enjoy it tonight. So, uh, cause I enjoy it, even though it was one of the owners and, you know, producers, I enjoy it just the same as, as, uh, as a fan. So, uh, I really, really appreciate what you guys are doing in your own way for comedy and, you know, hosting these uh, podcasts. And I, I'm, it's really a, it's really a delight to be on with you. I really appreciate you asking me to be on and anytime be happy to, you know, come back at some point and I'd love to meet you both in person. So uh, we, we will be at a show you. soon. You know, we, you know, when I, when I, when I do one of your clubs, I'll paper at Van Fanuel Hall and I'll pass out some dicks bucks. John, thank you so much. All right, Jack. Thanks, Joe.